0: The whole of the teaching of the Buddha is divided into three parts and the Samana Pala Sutta is divided into those three parts. Sila Samadhi and Panya Moral Conduct, Concentration and Wisdom Insight. These are the three parts of the teaching. And those three parts are always addressed. They are addressed by the Buddha in different ways and from different angles, but that's what it all amounts to, those three parts. Now the first part that is usually addressed is sila, moral conduct. Not always. In the Noble Eightfold Path, it starts out with wisdom inside. But here in the Samana Pala Sutta, it's again that one that is addressed first. And this is a very common way the Buddha to speak because our conduct is nothing but a manifestation of our thoughts and if our thoughts don't have a certain purification in them already the other two namely concentration and wisdom insight are unlikely to arise. One mustn't think now that one must become perfect first before one can sit down to meditate but one certainly has far more of a chance to meditate well if the mind is not cluttered up with too many desires and dislikes. So now after King Ajasatu had asked his question now for the third time whether there wouldn't be any more fruits of a spiritual life, The Buddha starts on a very elaborate explanation of moral conduct. First, he answered about the first two possibilities that um, a slave or an employee or a laborer would become a monk and the king would then no longer have jurisdiction over him, which was also a teaching for the king because the king is... Often inclined to think he's almighty and uh, like rulers of countries often have that mistaken view but here he was shown that as soon as a person would take himself away from that kind of situation the might of the king was no longer applicable so that was also good for the king to know that the same applied to a farmer or a householder who was paying taxes, and then wouldn't have to pay any taxes anymore. Same applies to us. If we don't make any money, we don't have to pay taxes and don't have to fill in income tax forms. very pleasant situation. A little less disturbance in the mind. So now, of course, that wasn't sufficient yet for the king as fruits for this spiritual life. Because, after all, he could see that the spiritual life that the Buddha was leading was so utterly different from what he himself was used to. And yet, the Buddha came from the same surroundings. So there had to be more than not paying taxes and not having to listen to a boss, so to say. There had to be more than that to it. And so the Buddha said, yes, there is certainly more than that to it. So now he's actually starting on his explanation of what all there is in the way of fruits of a spiritual life. And the first thing that he talks about is the fact that a person who hears the Buddha would gain confidence. Now obviously for us that doesn't apply. We can't hear the Buddha himself but we can certainly get to know his words. They are available to us. So the confidence which we can gain is that which I've already mentioned, the opening of the heart. With that confidence comes a certain giving of oneself. If one has an inner brittleness, an inner resistance or something which could be be explained as I want to be convinced, I need to be shown in order to be convinced, one has a barrier. Unless there is confidence, one can't actually do it. It's like learning to swim. If one has never been able to swim yet and one has to jump into the swimming pool or clamber into it and start swimming, a certain confidence is needed that one isn't going to drown. So one needs confidence in that swimming teacher, whoever is trying to show one how to swim. If one screams one's head off, which small children are apt to do when they're put into the swimming pool, they're not learning to swim. They're just afraid and get out again. This confidence is essential. There's no way around it. If we haven't got it, we'll have to acquire it somehow. And the Buddha says also that an intelligent person can hear the truth. Without having been able to prove it to him or herself yet. They understand when they hear the truth and then have enough confidence to try it out. Same as trying to swim. Have enough confidence to get in there, even without having been able to do it yet. So, this is the first step. The Buddha also said to the king that when the Buddha arises and he calls himself in this, on this occasion, the Tathagata, and talks about himself in the third person, which happens not infrequently. And the Tathagata means, literally translated, the one gone such, gata, gone, tata, such, which is suchness, um, which can, we could possibly Translate one who has seen. So he talks about himself in the third person, doesn't always do that. He often says, I also. Language by no means can depict the inner realization of the non I because our whole language gets mixed, mixed up if we do that. But in this case, he does. He talks about the Tathagata and says, If a Tathagata arises, he teaches the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end now that sounds like a simple statement and it really is but there's meaning behind that and this is something that applies to us quite um, markedly, namely here in the west where we have no tradition of Buddhism and little confidence in it We are apt to pick out of it what we like. For instance, meditation. We like the meditation. If it works at all, we like it very much. If it doesn't work, we are hoping that it may work one day. And so we pick that out of the whole kit and caboodle and theorite meditation, Buddha taught meditation, so we'll take that one. It's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. It's got to be complete. And complete means sila, samadhi and panya, all three. All three are good. And within that framework of a whole spiritual teaching, we then have meditation as a means, but not an end in itself. And this is something that is very, very often totally misunderstood because we also ha- do not have a tradition of meditation in the West we have meditation now being bandied around there's a very interesting word just as it was 20 years ago when people started talking about yoga and were thinking of uh, stretching their arms and legs at the time now it's got a little more acquainted with it and they know a little more about it but this is happening now with the word meditation Buddha says, the whole thing, don't pick out what you like. It's all applicable, every bit of it. So there, he also says another thing, he says, and the targeted teaches the meaning and the letter. So what he says is that the uh, Buddha teaches the exactness of it, but also the meaning behind it. So he gives instructions how to do, but he's never content with just saying, now do that. He always explains why to do it. So he always has a why and a how. And that is the one thing which is very rare to find in anywhere in any spiritual teaching such an exactness of instruction and also the explanation why what it does what is the meaning behind it so we have a jewel which we can use for ourselves if we're willing to actualize it within us and then he says so that's the first step on this third fruit that he's talking about and then he says so if a householder gains confidence in what he hears he may embark upon this spiritual quest and will as a first step certainly try to live according to the five precepts. Now that's considered to be a minimum base for a spiritual path. But the Buddha elaborates on them quite markedly. He doesn't say they're not enough. He explains them in more detail. Now with the first one, with not killing living beings, he adds to that not to kill or destroy plants. So he has ecology at heart. And that is two and a half thousand years ago. Not to willfully destroy plant life. Now, obviously, there are certain things that are detrimental, they are even poisonous. Uh, weeds around in Australia very poisonous ones but he says not to willfully destroy plant life because that too is a violent act so he includes no violence obviously to animals of any size no matter how small but includes that too so that goes really a step further, which cannot be expected of people who just try to live a decent human life, but which he adds to the first precept for people who want to live a spiritual life. So we have a distinction there between just a decent human life, which is also very uh, admirable, and a spiritual life. And then no violence of any kind, he mentions that. And he mentions that it's important not to go to unsuitable entertainment. In other words, not to see unsuitable shows. Why is that? Obviously to protect the mind from the wrong input. This is a very important aspect, the protection of our mind. We give far too little attention to that. Most people, even meditators, take their mind for granted. Only if one has meditated long enough and has seen enough rubbish in one's mind coming up and one doesn't want it, one understands that something has to be done to protect the mind. It's a jewel mind is a jewel it's the jewel in the universe there's nothing that's more valuable the only thing that has real value because it contains the seed of enlightenment it's the greatest thing there is we've all got it and if we don't protect it it's like scratching a beautiful jewel it's like dirtying it not looking after it and not being able, because of that, to see its lust and brilliance. So the protection goes to, and the Buddha is very pragmatic about it, don't go to unseemly shows. In other words, don't have a TV set. Very simple. And if you do, be very selective. He also mentions no dancing, no music. And I had occasion today to talk about that. People often think that this particular um, elaboration on the precepts is dour and uh, um, very tedious and makes the Buddha out to be a person who doesn't like people to enjoy themselves. And um, people don't like to think of that like way. But actually, anyone who has Music as a livelihood or music as a very important hobby Knows from their own experience that meditation is very difficult to come by Because music stays in the mind very strongly thing is Well, it's a bit of um, Self um, showing yourself a little bit, so therefore also not desirable. Now these are all protections. The uh, protection of the mind from the music, protection of the mind from the shows which put in the wrong input. And it goes further to protect the mind. It goes to the point of the kind of things that we talk about. Now we have the precept of the fourth precept of not using wrong speech, but he goes much further on that. And he mentions many things which are wrong to talk about. Now again, this applies to people only who really determined to have a spiritual life. Only people who just live decent human lives would not be very badly affected by that all these things affect a meditator he says not to talk about kings and ministers wars and armies in other words politics not to talk about them in the manner of taking sides and trying to figure out what's better if one can help to have people think peacefully that's a different matter no politics because politics make bad bedfellows there's always something wrong with politics. It can never be right. There are always two sides to it, at least. And people get pretty excited about politics. So that is also protection. And another protection is um, not to talk about things one would like to get. Because that arouses discontent. And also this is particularly uh, strongly mentioned, not to talk about such things that one doesn't have and wants to get. And by the same token, the uh, sexual connotation of men talking about women and women talking about men should be shunned also. Again, it gives the mind something um, to think about, which is very unmeditative, non-meditative. So there is more to the right speech than not lying. There's also no slander and then the idle chatter, the harsh words, and then these topics, to shun these topics. He also mentions an elaboration on the precepts, the right kind of livelihood. Now this is also one of the steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. But he mentioned that here, without even mentioning the Noble Eightfold Path, he just adds it to the precepts for a spiritual in, spiritually inclined person. And there are many livelihoods mentioned, many pages of them, which are wrong. And most of them we don't have anything to do with. They're quite uh, uh, strange sounding. But what they amount to are feeding the superstition of people and prophesying. These are all wrong livelihoods. For instance, the saying that this and this thing is going to happen and uh, making out if that one knows that, and people do that sort of thing, like crystal ball giving and stuff like that. And also, the um, feeding of superstition, people are naturally superstitious, and to use anything at all that could feed that is very wrong. Now, not necessarily that it even makes a livelihood. It's also wrong in speech. It's livelihood and speech, Both in both cases it's wrong. A livelihood, of course, has to be one that doesn't break any of the five precepts. One shouldn't have anything to do with any livelihood that has anything to do with that. So it talks about uh, not uh, dealing with slaves and dealing with uh, with women and all that type of thing, because these are wrong livelihoods but it goes a little further, not even to talk about these things, like um, making out um, that, uh, that one can actually dis- explain what dreams are about, that type of thing, All um, not the kind of uh, conversation which is suitable. There, um, they have a certain um, ego, um support in them one wants to support one's own ego that one really knows these things, and actually the other person could be get quite disturbed from it if one tells them something they don't want to hear so he he gives a long, long list of these things that shouldn't be done and then he talks about luxury now he himself of course came from very luxurious environment and then, for six years, he practiced austerities. And he found out that both didn't work. Neither luxury nor austerity. has to be the middle path. Now that, in our Western affluence, is of course completely misunderstood. What is the middle path? Maybe we think the middle path is having only two bathrooms instead of three or something like that or only two cars instead of three. Um, It's nothing like that. What he talks about, about not having luxurious environment, is to be content with that which is necessary. Now, there it's difficult to distinguish between need and greed. Very difficult. The Buddha gives four things which are absolutely needed. That's clothing, a roof over one's head, food, and medicine when sick. So now we can go home and check out whether that's all we've got. (laughs) So, and of course there are always justifications, but the reason why it's detrimental to have too much it's actually easy to see everything that one has needs care it gets dirty so it has to be cleaned it breaks so it has to be repaired it has to be either insured or locked in because somebody might steal it and it not, not only that it does something else it enlarges than me-identification. And our me-identification is big enough. It consists of this whole person always. But then if we've got other persons and other things, it includes that too, so it enlarges that too. So not only do we have to worry about all this stuff, no, we also have to be identified with it. It's mine. So he he mentions that as another. These are not to be considered actual precepts. There are an enlargement upon them. There's more to it than just uh, not taking what is not given. There's also that part to it, the non-luxury. And then there's another one which is not, which belongs with that. It's the same thing, belongs with that. Not to try and beautify oneself. Now that doesn't mean that one should run around ragged. He often talked about the cleanliness. Very interesting. He said in another discourse, not this one, he said that before one sits down to meditate, one should be sure that one's body and one's clothing is clean and that one's surroundings are clean and tidy. And uh, that is something that he takes as one of the prerequisites. Then also health is very uh, helpful because the body has energy and so the mind is not perturbed but in other words that one shouldn't beautify oneself doesn't mean that one should be uh, in any context dirty or ragged or messy looking not, nothing like that it's not the opposite to, to uglify oneself it doesn't mean that at all that's another um, mysterious myth that's been going around in the west for the last uh, 30 years and the, from the 60s You know, this this, uh, funny way of uh, coloring one's hair and wearing the most um, absurd clothing and all that type of thing. It just means that one shouldn't try to look um, younger and attractive uh, by artificial means painting oneself in this colour or that colour, that's all it means. And this is a very uh, um, common thing that is done uh, anywhere, everywhere. I mean, that's not just a Western uh, uh, absurdity. It's done everywhere. And maybe we could admit that uh, women are a little more guilty there than men in that respect. We have other advantages. So there's a great elaboration of things which he mentions, which are all part and parcel of a basic conduct. Now, they are all based on on an understanding. They are never based on thou shalt not. The Buddha was um, a realist. He recognized the fact that if we are told not to do something, just like little kids, we're more likely to do it because it's forbidden, so it seems to have an attraction. He much rather preferred the meaning behind all this so that we would refrain from doing these things through understanding why they're not good for us. And if we understand that, it would be far more likely that we would refrain from doing that. And what we can understand about it is that with all these restraints we first of all have a priority in our lives the priority of spiritual growth which is not to be which from which we're not to be distracted through too many belongings through too much entertainment through not guarding the mind in the talk we have, and the interests we have. But to keep on a path, to keep there and realize that obviously we all have duties and obligations and responsibilities, but that they are just that and nothing more. And that we can use our life, whether we are just sitting in meditation or not, makes no difference, we can use our life to try and see the truth rather than try to make it as comfortable and as luxurious for ourselves as possible because we have seen the impermanence of all that and we have seen the non-satisfaction which arises out of impermanence that the totality of peace and harmony cannot be attained through the senses because they have to be resurrected all the time now all of these things which are mentioned here, all are a base where we see poverty and also are happy within ourselves because we know we're making effort and also because we are, know that we're blameless. We haven't, that more refers to the actu- actuality of the five precepts, we haven't hurt anyone. Or anything. And we have been harmless. We have been generous. We haven't done anything which we can have remorse or self blame for. And therefore, it is a necessary base for meditation. Buddha says that the third step, after we have realized that the world isn't all that it's made out to be, and have gained confidence in the teaching that joy arises in the mind before we can meditate. And this is part of that joy, the feeling of happiness about one's own efforts of restraint, about one's own efforts to be blameless, and recognizing within oneself, I've tried my very best. There's a feeling of Satisfaction arises from that. Maybe we've all experienced that. If one lets oneself go just because one feels that it's too much trouble to try, it doesn't really give satisfaction. What it gives is a feeling of being loose, very often at loose ends, it gives a feeling of sort of falling apart. Whereas if one pulls oneself together, and makes the necessary effort, there's a great feeling of inner strength. and that's But there are maybe one little tree somewhere in a corner. <laughs> but they're fantastic. That's as simple as can be. And yet, it's aesthetically very, very attractive. It gives you a feeling, actually, when you walk into something like that, it gives you a feeling of, You want to be quiet because it it, it, um, um, seems to support quietness. It doesn't uh, give the senses excitement. It makes the senses quiet. Better than a street full of uh, shop windows. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? I thought you'd have much more to say about this topic. (laughs) We've been through that before, haven't we? (laughs) Well, maybe something will still come. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Look into your heart and see whether there are any troubles in there, any worries, any fears, any dislikes, any desires, any plans. Resentments, any rejections, any fixed ideas which give rise to anxiety disquiet, dis-ease, unease. ease If you find any of these, or anything else like that, let it float away like black clouds that are being dispersed by the wind in the sky. And now look into your heart again and see the spaciousness, the openness, the purity of non-judgment, of non-desire, of non-hate. Look at this open, purity and then fill it fill it with love and compassion with peace and joy and fill yourself from head to toe with peace and joy overflowing from your heart and surround yourself with the warmth and care of love and compassion. Now put your attention on the person nearest you in this room and let your heart reach out to him or her, sharing your peace and joy and giving your love and compassion as a gift. And now share your peace and joy that comes from your heart with everyone here, letting it overflow to each one here and surround everyone with the warmth and care of your love and compassion. Think of those people who are near and dear to you. Share your peace and joy with them. Let it flow into their hearts. Embrace them with your love and compassion. Without expecting the same in return. Think of all your good friends, share peace and joy with them, fill their hearts with it, embrace them with love and compassion, letting them have the warmth and care from your heart. Think of all the people who are part of your life at work or wherever you may meet them on your travels, where you live. Share peace and joy with them. Let your heart overflow into their hearts. Surround them with love and compassion. Making them equal to those that are near and dear to you. Think of anyone in your life with whom you may have difficulties. Let peace and joy flow from your heart into that person's heart. Embrace him or her with love and compassion. Letting that person have warmth and care as a gift from you. Think of all the people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. In hospital, in prison, in refugee camps, fighting a war, blind, crippled, hungry, without friends, without medicine. Embrace them with your love and compassion so that they may feel some peace, some joy, some hope. Let all the love and compassion you have flow out, reaching out to these people. Of which there are many. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel only the peace and the joy in your heart. Recognizing that all the other things that your heart may contain have flown away. And embrace yourself with love and compassion. With the warmth and care from your heart. Feeling at ease. Safe and secure. May beings everywhere have peace and joy in their heart.